one of the symptoms of sickle cell is jaundice mm. and it can cause like a yellowing of the skin a yellowing of the, the whites of your eyes mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that not only my mom would look for when she'd see or are we feeling okay she'd start to say your skin is looking jaundice or your eyes are looking really yellow but it was it was something that from time to time people would come up to us and say why are your eyes yellow what's wrong with you why do you look like that um, it's hard to explain those kinds of things to a kid, but, um, but that was always one of the indicators that my, my parents and my teachers would also sort of look for to see, um, something wrong. That was my guest on today's show, Jonah Brown, who was diagnosed with sickle cell disease as a first grader. And now in, in his mid thirties, he's lived uh, 30 years with it. And we're going to jump into the mental health part of it, the relational part of it. And of course, how it affects your body. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. and you hosted by Toby Jenkins a licensed marriage and family therapist serving Central Kentucky each week Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health relationships or self-improvement the name of the show paradigm comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client an epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and I'm happy today to welcome back a guest from a previous show, Jonah Brown. Uh, Jonah Brown is uh, a 2010 graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Law. He is an attorney and community activist in the central Lexington, central Kentucky, Lexington area. Some of his political um, activities from the past, he worked on the 2008 Obama for America campaign. He's also worked on various uh, local campaigns. Um, welcome back to the show. You know, uh, we got into a lot of stuff with Sickle Cell in the first show, the first time you came on, but there's so much more we didn't get to. So, um, so yeah, so just kind of um, reintroduce us, walk us back through like, what is Sickle Cell? And then we'll jump into uh, how long you've been diagnosed and some of the topics we didn't get to the first time. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and thank you again for having me back. I really enjoyed talking um, talking about my experiences with you and hope that it can um, help someone else that's out there listening in some way. Um, yeah, as we, as we mentioned in our last episode, uh, sickle cell disease is a rare um, genetic uh, blood disorder that affects predominantly African-Americans, but it, it can affect anyone. Um, it is a disease basically where your body um, in addition to producing healthy uh, red blood cells, also produced his um, sickle-shaped uh, blood cells that um, have trouble spreading throughout the body and delivering oxygen to the body the way red blood cells are intended to. Um, when that happens at a certain uh, rate, 
Um, it's what we call signaling, and the body is entering in a crisis state where the body starts to experience um, pain in certain areas of the body. It starts to experience um, low oxygen, and um, that can lead to other very serious complications. Um, what we call a, a sickle cell crisis or a pain episode is something that can last anywhere from a few hours or a day to um, several weeks, depending on the severity. Um, it can affect multiple uh, parts of the body at the same time. Hmm. Um, and while there are lots of indicators that we, we touched on that can trigger a sickle cell crisis, it's also fairly unpredictable in that you can also feel otherwise healthy uh, mm-hmm. one minute and the next minute end up sick. Um, body's very, very unique in that way that um, you don't always know in advance that something's happening on the inside that's about to, about to attack you. Um, and this is something that I was born with. I, I, I lived with my entire life. I, I, as we talked, uh, I first became aware of exactly what it meant to have sickle cell when I was in first grade, when I had my first sickle cell crisis and was hop- hospitalized for uh, about a week or two. Hmm. Um, and that pretty much continued um, for the rest of my life in varying frequencies. Um, there have been years where I've been healthy and, and not been sick at all. Um, there have been years where I've been in the hospital from, you know, one or two times to um, six or seven times. Um, and um, I've had lots of different um, complications and surgeries and other things. So it's certainly um, it's certainly a disease that affects the body in, in lots of different ways. And um, it's something that is um, difficult to treat, difficult to manage because of the, the, the variety of ways that it affects um, a person living with it. So being diagnosed as a first grader, um, how, um, I mean, (laughs) I would assume that, uh, as a first grader, that's a lot to take in and to assume and to, I would expect, did you expect the worst? I mean, how did you, how did you manage it or process it as a first grader? Because I'm sure there are other kids out there with it that, um, may be facing the same thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, what I remember, um, was that it was sort of a, a, a slow process because, you know, as a child, you can get sick with anything for a few days and be down and come back and get back to your normal self because you're going back to playing. You're going back to, you know, first grade school is, um, you know, it's, I think for me, it was probably um, the repeated nature of it. I know that I was, I, re- I very vividly remember being scared by the type of pain that I was feeling that very first time. Um, mm-hmm. I never felt anything like that. And it was, I mean, it was intense. It was, it was very intense, especially for a, a young child. Um, so I was, I was um, aware from, from then on. I, I, it never completely left my mind once I realized mm-hmm. that this is something that can happen to me again, that it likely would happen to me again. Um, but you don't fully grasp it until you've gone through it a few times and you realize mm-hmm. this is going to continue to happen to you. And uh, last time it, it was a pain episode in your back. This time mm-hmm. it's a pain episode in your in your leg, and this is in your arm. Um, and even still, in those moments, I think as a child, it is very easy to compartmentalize times when I'm sick versus times when I'm healthy. Um, because when I was healthy, uh, which was most of my days um, as a child, I had a fairly normal um, childhood. I had a had a you know great life. I, me and my sister um, played like any other kids would play. Um, mm-hmm. we, we played sports, we played outside, we played video games, 
you know, we, we were normal in every other sense, but there were times when um, Super Soul would, would rear its head in, in either a very mild way or a very aggressive way. Mild might mean, you know, I started to notice that I'm tired earlier when we're out playing or my parents might call me in earlier in the day if it's too hot or if I haven't, you know, stopped and had, had something to drink. Um, just little things like that, which are, are not that big of a deal. But then, you know, you get sick, you're out of school for two weeks, you don't get to see your friends and your body is, is now, um, you know, in pain and soreness. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the unique things about sickle cell is that once a pain episode stops, you know, that, that could be a week, it, it could be a few days. Um, the body then starts to recover and heal from the crisis, which mm -hmm. is also quite painful. Uh, I go through several days of just my muscles uh, regaining strength and recovering. Um, but that might mean in the meantime that I'm aching and that there are parts of my body that are very tender to the touch and um, might be difficult for me to, to walk around or to do certain things. So uh, in that sense, it was like being a child, any other child that has um, an illness, a strep throat or uh, chicken pox or something where you're down for a couple of weeks, um, except for me, it was much more frequent and much more painful. Um, so that had to be pretty difficult for your parents to make, cause you brought up a couple of things, um, um, you know, that have come to light from a political standpoint, most recently, like if you, if you're out for two weeks and somebody has to take off work to be with you, that's one thing. Another thing that kind of popped into my popped in as a question, um, you know, from your parents' perspective, and maybe you were too young to understand it back then, but, um, were there times that they overreacted? underreacted because um, that's that had to be really difficult on your parents especially you being first second elementary school age yeah I you know I think it, it definitely it definitely um, it drove my parents um, in a maybe a different direction than what they might have thought our lives were going to look like mm. um, and and it, it shaped their lives as well um, you know, it's hard to say whether there was ever times where they overreacted or underreacted. They were always very attentive to any issues that my sister and I ever had. We said we weren't feeling well. Um, you know, they they reacted pretty immediately. I I, I sometimes would feel like um, my parents worried too much, but I don't mm -hmm. know that they actually did. I think that's just what we think as a kid. You know, when every time you leave, your mom stops you and says put your coat on or mm -hmm. where's your bottle of water <laughs> or when you come home you know part of what my mom might ask me in addition to how my day was at school was how much water did I drink mm -hmm. um, and you know I, I did get tired of some of that but I also realized that it's easy for a child to to not take those things seriously and so it was always at the forefront of my parents mind to check and make sure that we were doing the right things to at least you know never never able to fully prevent a crisis but to minimize the chances of something happening um but you know i i also know um i don't think they'd mind me sharing this i know that my parents did have to make um some important life decisions themselves mm -hmm. at a very um early point in my childhood uh for example you know i mentioned in the last episode where we lived at the time in, in richmond kentucky uh, had a hospital and emergency room but they weren't equipped to deal with sickle cell and didn't see a lot of sickle cell patients. Uh, my parents, I think in my, in middle school had decided that they were going to move closer to Lexington because of the frequency that we were going to the ER and in an ER situation, 
Um, they wanted, you know, every, every couple of minutes matters. Um, so they didn't want to spend 30 minutes um, flying down the highway. Uh, so we, we got closer to, we moved closer to Lexington and that was uh, one of the primary reasons. Um, I also know that when my parents got married, um, my, both of my parents worked full time. Um, once my parents realized that my sister and I were going to have these health issues, um, they made the collective decision that my mom was going to basically be um, homemaker and, and stay at home and okay. take care of my sister and I, um, because it was it was not only difficult getting that kind of time off regularly, but it was also just easier for my mom to uh, be more hands on and have mm-hmm. a closer eye on us by being there with us. Um, so she, you know, would pick us up from school, take us take us to school. She took us to doctor's appointments and things like that, and. Uh, was just in between, always, always on guard, doing the things a parent would do, but also keeping an eye on, looking out yeah. for any signs or signals. Um, one of the things that, uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and I'll, I'll come back to one of the things that, that I know that they always look for. That's, um, that's amazing and awesome that your parents were able to, to do that. Now, did they know they were both carriers uh, before they had children? Um, I don't know if they knew before they had children. I believe they learned that um, either after me or after my sister uh, was born. Because uh, I mentioned that at the time, that was not something that insurance companies required testing for. So uh, I'm not certain when they both learned that, but I don't know that they knew. Ah, okay. Well, cool. Um, well, we're up against a commercial break. Um, my guest today is Jonah Brown, and we're, we're talking more about sickle cell and its many implications living with it long term. So uh, you're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. We'll be right back after this break. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com or by calling 859-806-0093. We are back. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Uh, I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Jonah Brown, and we've been talking about uh, sickle cell. And so, um, you know, before the break, we were talking about you being diagnosed in first grade, dealing with a lifelong diagnosis as a seven, eight-year-old. And, um, you know, um, kids can be cruel. I know... uh, because that's what kids do. So outside of, you know, you mentioned that um, there'd be long spans of time where you'd be dealing with um, with acute situations where you'd be out of school, but um, there had to be some difficulty with other immature children in you dealing with uh, sickle cell. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, kids understand these kinds of things to varying degrees. Um, you know, I, like I said, we have had a normal childhood and, and what's unique about sickle cell is that it's entirely possible that I could be sitting right beside you and be in a crisis and you not know about it because it doesn't manifest itself by any kind of physical appearance. 
except for except for one thing, um, and that is jaundice. Jaundice is something that affects uh, lots of different people for different illnesses, but sickle cell is, is one of them. Um, and what jaundice basically does is it causes this yellowing of the skin, yellowing of the whites of your eyes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's something that can come and go. It can be more intense or less intense. And um, it's one of these indicators that uh, my parents would look for. My teachers were instructed to look for to see if, you know, I might not be feeling well, if I needed to rest or something. If they start to notice that my eyes were taking on a much more yellowish tone and my skin was looking more yellowish than um, that might indicate that I, I could be entering a, a crisis situation. Um, but that's also something that for young kids is really difficult to understand. And so we've got my, my sister and I both would get teased, we would mm. get picked on, we'd get really um, awkward questions. And even the most earnest questions from kids mm. can still be difficult. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was something that, you know, we could not help, we couldn't control. And can't even see so i i don't know yeah. what my eye looks like i right. have to rely on what people tell me um and sometimes you know kids would would find ways to say it really really cruelly um other times you know there, there's been there's been issues i've had where didn't want certain information about what i was going through to get out to my classmates you know i just want them to know that i'm, I'm not doing well or I'm, I'm in the hospital but i don't want them to know the details and sometimes um you know, people can can share too much and, and mm-hmm. talk too much and end up putting the, the patient in a position to have to explain to kids right. exactly what was going on. Well, my mom said that, that you had this or my, my the teacher said that this is what you did. And um, those kinds of things can be tough mm-hmm. um, for sure. And I think that it's just really hard. I, I don't know how it is now in classrooms when when teachers explain to kids about their classmates that go through illnesses. But at the time, um, I never fully felt like they knew what to say or how to explain it. Um, and, and while most of my friends were great and I didn't have a lot of issues that like stuck with me, um, I, I know others that did. And I, I, I definitely experienced some of those instances of, of being picked on and bullied for something that I couldn't control. And, um, you know, that's, it's tough. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, and kids, I mean, <laughs> you, yeah, they, without understanding probably have said and done some really cruel, uh, things, uh, knowingly or not. Um, cause you know, that's what, that's what kids do. So, um, now with your family, uh, you, you and your sister both, uh, had the disease, um, I'm sure that had to have some impact on your, not only just your family relationships, just relationships in general, uh, as a, you know, elementary school kid, adolescent. So, uh, what was that experience like for you? You know, I'll, I'll, let me just say this about my, my sister and I, um, having such a unique shared experience. We're, we're two and a half years apart. I'm the, I'm the oldest. And, um, you know, I, I, I saw that my sister looked up to me very young, like most younger siblings do. But uh-huh. I also saw that we just had a had a unique bond that was different from other siblings. And uh, people would always comment on how close my sister and I were, how close our family was. And I think they just thought we got along differently than other siblings. And the truth is, we didn't. We fought like all siblings do. But um, we, we, we didn't fight as often and we didn't fight as intensely because I think... Um, 
and it was almost unspoken until until we've gotten later uh, later in our years when my sister actually uh, we talk openly about our experiences but at the time it was just more of a understanding that we both had a common common experience mm. and um, it was hardest on my sister when I was sick. It was hardest on me when my mm, sister was sick, yeah. um, because I knew exactly what she was going through and mm-hmm. she knew exactly what I was feeling. So, um, that helped, you know, I hate that she had to experience it, but it helped to have someone go through, um, go through my childhood and, and, and understand because no one else did. I didn't have any friends with sickle cell growing up. I didn't, I knew people, I met people, but I didn't have anyone that was present in my life like that um you know as a child i I think this is probably true for kids with any kinds of chronic illness or disease um it it forces you to mature in a lot of ways and grow up in a lot of ways that other kids um, don't have to because you know like i said i had to have a really deep complex understanding of this health situation uh, at a very young age Mm -hmm. um it also forced me to um, to mature, I think, spiritually much, much younger because, um, you know, one of the ways that my family coped and, and, and dealt with what we were going through was through prayer. And that was something that was instilled in me very young from my parents, from my grandparents, um, from our church community. And so it wasn't just a a thing that we did say our prayers at the end of the night, you know, we, we were praying very intently, um, very early on um, for help, for relief, for a cure um, in the moments of pain. Um, you know, I would take my medicine, I would be given my fluids and then you just kind of lay there and you just suffer through the pain. Um, it is very difficult to go, you know, a few seconds in, in the pain of, of sickle cell crisis, but to go through it for days, um, it's very difficult not to sort of be humbled and, and fall down to your knees and realize that, that regardless of the best medicine, the best doctors, the best care, mm-hmm. um, this is still something that is far greater than what I can uh, get through on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it drew me much closer to God, very, very young. Um, and helped me just to explore what, what those concepts meant as a child that I, I think mm-hmm. most kids probably don't have to reconcile um, for a while. Um, and that just, I think for me led to lots of other areas of just maturity. And I was still a kid. I still had fun. I was still a, a teenager, uh, uh-huh. when I, when I got older and, and did all the kinds of things that teens do, but there was just a part of me that had to be more responsible, more mature, had to yep. be more disciplined as I got older. And I was now looking after myself, um, I didn't have to, I didn't need my, my parents to remind me all of these things as they were as a kid. I had to, I had to know you got to yeah. do this. And it's not because we, we are giving you a hard time. It's because it's how you stay healthy. Um, and so I, I think that has carried over. And sometimes I wish that I could have been more relaxed as a child and still today. But um, when you, when you, I think anyone listening to this that lives with a chronic illness, it's got to constantly monitor your health. Um, sure. in so many different ways um it, it's hard not to be more uh, mature and more uh, forced to to grow up and and deal with some really adult um concepts you know yeah. my parents were very generous in letting me talk with my doctors directly as a, at a young age so they would ask their questions but i was always free to ask any questions i wanted i was free to 
share my thoughts and opinions. And sometimes I would argue with the doctor. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'd get frustrated if I couldn't seem to get better. Um, but I had to be hands-on. I had to understand what was going on and I had to be able to make the decisions myself. All of my, uh, all of my decisions about procedures, about surgeries, about medications. Um, I can, I talked with my parents. I talked with people that I trusted, but they allowed me to make all of those decisions myself, um, uh, very young. Um, so I, I had no choice. Yeah. Are they, you know, speaking of, uh, your interaction with doctors, um, have there been things, have there been predictions about the progression of sickle cell uh, that have not come to pass? Let's see. You know, uh, doctors, I think, are, are pretty good about sort of hedging their bets when they're talking about diagnoses and things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, what I always heard was, you know, this is something that can happen to you anytime, but if you're doing all the things that you need to be doing, like staying hydrated. And as I got older, taking the medicine that I take every day um, on time, if I'm compliant with all of those things and I can minimize the, the um, impact. But then what I found as I got older was that um, there were sort of different seasons or cycles in my life where it, it affected me more than others. And it seemed to be completely out of my control. You know, Hmm. when I was in high school, for example, um, I had a lot of issues and I don't know if it was because my body was changing as I was getting older. I don't know if, um, it was because my lifestyle was changing, but, um, I I could not stay out of the hospital, um, for a good couple of years there. I was just in and out every other month or so. And some of them were more severe than others, but it was, it was seriously disrupting my life. Um, and that was something that, you know, when those things happen, I go to the doctors and I try and understand, I know the disease, I get it, but why now is this happening so much more? As I've been, you know, since I've, I've been older and on my own, I've uh, had some serious complications and things that can happen long-term with sickle cell. And it's the same thing. It's, I get the underlying issues, but I still don't understand now how all these other things are happening and how I have no control over it. And, um, uh, that, that kind of stuff is difficult. So it's not so much that the, the doctors, uh, you know, predicting things that, that didn't come to pass as much as it is just the inability to predict yeah. all the things that could happen. Um, yeah. The other challenge, I, we, we talked last episode about the doctors not really knowing uh, as much as, as they should about the disease. Um, there are a lot of things that I've experienced that I've come to learn are very common with sickle cell, but I just wasn't told about until mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. until they happened to me. And I don't, I don't think that that's a good thing. I know that I, I could not have prevented them, but I think people that, that live with this um, need to know what could lie ahead for them in the future when it comes to um, things like having kids or uh, taking care of their bone health, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, organ tra- uh, managing and monitoring the health of your organs because part of the, 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 awful thing about sickle cell is that these sickled cells, these damaged red blood cells, as they flow through your body, um, they're not doing what a healthy red blood cell is supposed to do. They can damage the organs and cause um, organ issues, organ failure. Um, and that's something that's just every day, uh, sickled cells are flowing through my body. There's nothing I can do to prevent that. But I need to be able to know 
what to look for if I ever have any organ issues. Um, There's other complications like stroke that are common for people with sickle cell that people need to know about. So that, that would be what I would say is, you know, it was, it was difficult to get a clear idea of what the road ahead was for me. It was always very in the moment. Um, But there's a lot of stuff that, that is common for people as they get older that I think patients need to know about. And a lot of that ties into uh, some of what we talked about last time. There's still a lot due to insufficient insufficient research and knowledge, especially broadly, that we just still don't know about sickle cell. Um, but we're up against a break. Actually, we're up against One Minute Insight. Um, today, my guest is Jonah Brown, and we're talking about the intricacies of sickle cell disease. We'll be right back after this break. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You, and this is One Minute Insight. When it comes to creating and sustaining new behaviors or habits, understanding how to have momentum work for us versus against us is really important. So remember this from the world of physics. An object at rest will stay at rest unless an unequal force acts on it. Same thing applies to creating momentum when we want to start new habits and keep them going. So. Using that same concept, the longer we don't do, the harder it is to overcome that lack of momentum to get things going. So reflecting back on my one minute and my insight from last week, one in a row, in other words, taking one small step is how you get that unequal force to help to get momentum to work for you. Because after you do it once, once you get some movement, doing it again and again becomes easier. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression. And many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. And we are back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships. And you, I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Jonah Brown, and we're talking sickle cell. Um, before the break, uh, you you were alluding to the, the many ways, but since sickle cell is a blood disease and it can ravage any parts of the body at any time without any rhyme or reason, but you mentioned stroke as being one of the ways that... Um, sickle cell can cause, uh, cause death in sickle cell patients. So um, what are some of the other, I, the more common ways that sickle cell causes? You also mentioned that uh, sickle cell can ravage certain organs too, but um, certainly. so what are the more common ways that uh, sickle cell uh, kills people? 
let me let me just say you know people with sickle cell can live healthy lives can live long lives the the um, life expectancy has has changed is very um, since I've since I've been born the numbers that, that we predict how long someone with sickle cell can live has changed because modern medicine is, has evolved as well um, but people can live long lives with sickle cell there are people with sickle cell and they're well into their 60s and 70s mm-hmm. um, there are just a lot of factors that go into the um, life expectancy for someone with sickle cell uh, but it, it can uh, it can be fatal in certain circumstances. And, um, you know, stroke is is one of the most common. Um, another would be pneumonia. Um, hmm. Dealing with acute uh, acute chest syndrome, um, having issues with breathing. One of the things that I've experienced several times is having difficulty breathing um, in a crisis. If I've got chest pain, um, that acute chest syndrome can be. Uh, can be very, very serious if, if you're not careful um, because the body needs to be able to breathe and be, needs to be able to produce oxygen, generate oxygen to flow through the body. And um, you're already at a deficit when you're sickling because your mm-hmm. body's not getting the blood um, to the areas that it needs to. Uh, you throw on top of that uh, a pneumonia episode or something that um, is causing difficulty uh, breathing. Um, it can be it can be very serious very quickly. Uh, I actually know of a, a few people that um, unfortunately passed away um, due to sickle cell. My wife has a family member who who passed away in college, um, and another uh, family another friend whose uh, family member passed away at a later age. Um, there are, there are people that 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 can suffer this and very. Um, very serious ways and uh, it can be life-threatening but you know I, I want people to that hear this to know that um, like any disease there are, there are serious complications that that can lead to fatalities but this is not a disease that people should be dying from with proper mm-hmm. and adequate care yep. uh, with education and with the right resources in your in your local medical providers um sickle cell disease is treatable and can, um, you know, under the right resources and circumstances and support systems, people sickle cell can have a, a great quality of life, um, even with the unpredictable and unrelenting nature of this disease. Um, I hope I hope people take that away because, you know, I've, I've shared a lot of really difficult moments that I've experienced throughout my life with this, but uh, I've still lived a, a very full, blessed life mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Um, when I'm, when I'm healthy, um, I'm healthy. <laughs> I'm not much different than <laughs> anyone else. I'm just, I've just got something in the back of my mind that I'm thinking about, but, um, you know, right. I, I, I've had those conversations with doctors about the things that I need to be aware of. Um, because you get to the place where you, you I, at least for me, I felt like I had it managed. I had a good understanding of what I needed to do to minimize my risk of, of a crisis, um, but then, you know, you get hit with curveballs. Like, um, one of the things that I've experienced, um, is avascular necrosis, which is a, a disease where, uh, your joints, um, your bones are, are denied adequate blood supply. And over time that can cause the bones to, uh, become necrotic or basically to die. Um, and I've had that in my left hip in my right hip in my right shoulder. I've had, uh, two shoulders, shoulder, uh, I've had a shoulder, excuse me, a shoulder surgery, 
and uh, hip surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had steroid injections. I've had my knees drained. I've had um, all kinds of different treatments for that particular disease. And that is not something that is fatal, but it is um, you know, a lifelong complication that I'll sure. have to live with. And a lot of people live with, uh, with sickle cell and with other diseases, but they're just curveballs like that, that you get thrown. And, and, you know, that was something I'd never heard of until it happened to me in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on, our, I was on my fraternity's uh, step team and I had been in practice for several weeks and started to have really, really bad pain in my hip and couldn't walk on it and went and got an x-ray. And I thought it was just a regular strain or injury mm-hmm. and found out that actually over the years, my hip has been starting to decay because of the sickle cell. And oh, wow. The, the stepping basically um, advanced it to the mm-hmm. point where I'd start to feel that kind of pain. Uh, but this was something that was inevitable. It was almost like a, a ticking time bomb in my, right. in my body, it, it felt like. So, you know, there are curveballs like that. And then, you know, we live in a, in a world where something like COVID-19 can happen and mm-hmm. create a, a serious, serious curveball for people living with chronic illnesses like sickle cell. So like you mentioned, you know, I was just thinking about that. Um, I've talked to a number of other people with uh, chronic diseases and anybody in any type of, um, with any type of immune, uh, compromised immune system had to be ex- especially careful through COVID. So, you know, with what mm-hmm. you just talked about with uh, acute chest syndrome and the way COVID attacks, attacks the body, that sounds mm-hmm. like um, you, know, you as well uh, as others really probably had to be pretty careful. So it was, I'm assuming that had to be pretty nerve wracking. Well, we're still in it, but 16, 17 months. Yeah. And even like, um, were there any trials with the vaccine that you know of with uh, people who were sickle cell carriers? Yeah. So there were, there were, there were not any specific trials for people with sickle cell. Um, uh, I was so when when we first learned about the 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 disease, when we first learned about COVID nineteen and understood that there were a lot of things we didn't know, but we did know that it was an upper respiratory illness or that affected the upper upper respiratory uh, system, and that is a recipe for any kind of disaster with sickle cell because, like I mentioned, with pneumonia and acute chest syndrome being things that you've got to really monitor. Um, any, any kind of illness, whether it's a, a really bad case of the flu or uh, mm-hmm. seasonal pneumonia, anything like that can, can be dangerous. Uh, what was, what we found with COVID pretty much just a few months in, we started getting data once, once it hit the United States and there was uh, a trove of data coming from cities like Detroit and, um, DC, I think Detroit in particular was the first to publish a study that said, um, People with sickle cell um, were having much higher incidence of serious disease with COVID-19, hmm. were much more likely to end up in the hospital and mm-hmm. had much higher uh, fatality rates. I think it was um, where, uh, let me see if I get this right. I think it was um, 10%, as, as high as 10% of the people with sickle cell that ended up in the hospital um, had, had fatal cases of, of COVID-19. Which wow. was which was up significantly from the uh, average population. Um, I remember contacting my specialists, contacting specialists in other cities um, very early on, and saying, "What do we know? What do mm-hmm. I need to know 
about this disease. Um, and so for me, trying to live my life, minimizing the risks and stay prepared for the next crisis, um, COVID was particularly difficult on my on my emotional and mental health because oh, um, it felt like nothing was safe. It felt mm-hmm. like, you know, especially before there was a vaccine, that there was nowhere I could go that I wouldn't be jeopardizing my health and my body. Um, and it wasn't, I, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I was 36 years old when COVID first hit. I'm 37 now, but, um, you know, for younger people, the calculation was you might be able to survive this. Um, yeah. And it's, you don't <laughs> have to be as on guard as, as a mm-hmm. 60 or 70 year old, but for someone with sickle cell, you pretty much are are no different than the vulnerable elderly population right. because um, how much easier it is for you to experience severe illness. And it seemed like with, with COVID, once you get severe illness, um, the body kind of shuts down and COVID takes over and it's hard to mm-hmm. manage what happens from there. With sickle cell, you just, you can't risk that. One of the things that I saw that was a unique symptom for sickle cell was um, a pain crisis. If you had COVID-19, you could, it could trigger a pain crisis. That's not something that other people oh, were wow. experiencing. So meaning but, like um, you get COVID and then all of a sudden some of the things you talked about, like knee or hip or joint severe, uh, acute, mm-hmm. uh, situation. Wow. Acute pains. Yeah. Start to take over. I mean, you know, COVID takes over so many different parts of how the body operates. So it, um, it, it was also quite frustrating because, you know, for me, I'm one of the people who's lived with a medical illness. And I don't expect people who don't to, to see this the same way. But um, it was very clear that there were people in lots of different populations that were going to be vulnerable to, to this disease. So being in one of those populations, it, it mattered to me greatly when people were compliant with things like wearing masks and social distancing, because it really, for me, was a matter of, of life and death. Um, yep. It wasn't political. It wasn't any yep. of those other things. Um, and that's just what I wanted and hoped that everyone would operate from a place of mm. uh, thinking about others, thinking about the people that you don't know what they're dealing with, but you know, they could be dealing with something. It could be cancer, it could be diabetes, it could be any of these other things, but you know that regardless, um, they're at a higher risk of, of severe illness and, and mortality. Um, and so that's, that's why it's always been important for me for us to all be responsible for one another and to have some sense of responsibility for our neighbors and our our community because there are people out there who cannot control how severe this can be um and i i unfortunately was one of those people yeah that was um you know i I had a couple people in my in my social network of uh, of friends and family and relatives um who uh through covid similar situation they they could not take the risk one of my good friends actually probably be good to have him on um, he actually, uh, was in the process of donating a kidney to his brother. And so mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. absolutely could not take any risk at getting COVID prior to doing this, uh, this, this, uh, kidney transplant. And so, right. um, and just, that's kind of the thing when you encounter, he encountered people not really following, you know, social distancing, masking, that kind of stuff. I mean, so it's not just his life, it was his brother's life too, um, yeah. at stake. And so, yeah, so COVID, uh, yeah, it's um, similar. Um, my, my daughter has a, has a good friend. Uh, her mother was going through cancer treatment. Absolutely could not catch COVID uh, yeah. post-cancer treatment. So certainly. So, yeah, so um, 
yeah, you just never know <laughs> due no, to the nature it, of COVID who's dealing with what. And so, yeah, and it creates that burden, not just for the, the person, but the people in that household. You know, my wife had to be just as strict and diligent as I was about who she was around mm-hmm. and how she took care of herself. I didn't really get to see my, my parents much, maybe a couple of times outdoors last year, but you know, it, it required everyone that was around me. You know, my job thankfully was very gracious about um, sending us home, letting us work remotely. And, and I never felt the pressure that I had to come back and be around people, but it wasn't because I didn't want to, or I didn't miss friends and I didn't miss interaction. It just, it was, it was a luxury simply to be able to be around people because I didn't, I, my risk was different than everyone else's risk. And you know, you mentioned COVID is still around. I, I would just say this. I hope people realize that for some people, even even vaccinated, you know, I've, I've been vaccinated, um, but the risk is still there because people are still getting sick and people that have underlying illnesses don't know how their body will respond to something like this. So there's a level of care and caution that we have to exercise. And it it, it makes all the difference if the people around us can can join in that. You know, just taking very small steps like putting a mask on when you're around someone that you know has a has a has an illness or an issue, uh, keeping keeping distance and and you know employers not requiring people with chronic illnesses to continue to interface with others. Um, yeah. It's it's something we just got to be better at. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I second that too because um, you just never know what the person in your six foot yeah. circle maybe dealing with um yeah and what risk you're putting in that so we're up against a commercial break uh you're listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you we'll be right back after this break you've got mail you've got mail today's list of the mail comes from clara clara writes i've suspected for a long time my husband's been cheating on me i've confronted him and he denies it he often acts funny with his phone and freaks out when i just look at his phone he continues to say i'm just paranoid but I know I'm not. How do I know if he's really cheating? This is a tough one, Jonah. Mm. Harder than the first one. <laughs> um, it's it's very difficult. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if all marriages go through this, but I'd say a lot of relationships deal with trust issues in a lot of different ways. And it can be very, very difficult um, on the person that's, that's feeling those concerns and on the, on the marriage itself. I would say, you know, Clara, um, because trust is so important, I think you got to look at how you build trust in a relationship. And I think one of the ways that you do that is through honesty and open communication. I think, you know, if if your partner has expressed um, denials and you still feel like there's something that needs to be addressed, I think you need to um, try and, and sit down and have an honest conversation with them and explain what's causing you to feel this way, what it, what behaviors you're seeing that makes you feel this way and, and say, I want to be wrong. I hope that I'm, I'm wrong about this, but um, I can't seem to let these things go. And, you know, I would also suggest talking with some other folks about what might be at the root of why you have been feeling that or more sensitive to it. Um, what, what has caused you to, to either notice these things or um, respond differently to them now? Um, because it, it's easy to to allow something in your head to grow as a as a problem or an issue, um, but I would say instead of of living in that space, try and address it head on with your spouse. Um, don't don't live in your head um, about something like like uh, infidelity. Uh, talk to them, 
and let them know I need reassurance. I don't, mm. I don't mean to not trust you, but I can't help but in this moment needing some reassurance that we're okay. And that, that, you know, you're being faithful. Um, you know, it might also not hurt to talk about setting some boundaries that might make you feel more comfortable with mm-hmm. um, your relationship, your communication or phone habits and things like that. It's, it's very tough this day and age to, to navigate those waters when our phones give us access to everyone 24 yes. seven, but especially um, Facebook. lead with, especially <laughs> Facebook. Um, <laughs> but I would just say lead, lead with honesty and, and say, I'm, this is not about me trying to have a fight with you or create a problem that doesn't exist. This is, this is how I'm feeling internally. I hope that you can understand enough to at least help me get through this so that we um, can get back to a place of trust. And, um, you know, if there is, if there is something else going on and you're right, I would encourage you both to um, talk to someone. Don't try and navigate those waters alone. Talk to a therapist, talk to a marriage counselor or a pastor or a friend that you trust um, because, that is that is heavy and difficult, and it can lead to things that are harder for for you two to deal with alone. That's real good, um, man. Um, I think I said before. I think you uh, you could do therapy, couples. You know, the, the, your your answer is really really good. The only like we don't know Clara's relationship history and her partner's uh, history, and I, you know, I'd say from from my approach and many therapists, especially do couples work, getting a relationship history is really important um, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there's a good chance um, that these feelings of, uh, of, of something else going on, they may, may have been planted in previous relationships or previous experiences. And so from that standpoint, um, clients often feel embarrassed or insecure if they have the, the intuition that something's going on. And so one of the first steps, uh, usually with therapy is to normalize that. And like you were saying, be able to have an open and vulnerable conversation with your partner. And then how do we reestablish trust from that position of vulnerability and validating how I, how each of you feel. And so from that standpoint, this tends to be a controversial approach that I take, but, um, if your suspicion I mean, the, 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 the double-edged sword with the phone is that, um, it can also dis you know, it can also, um, prove that there's nothing going on. So I, I highly encourage couples to share passwords. If some, if one or both of you don't feel, feel like something's going on to check, check text messages, check call histories. Um, because if there's nothing going on, then it will help you feel more secure in this intuition that you have that something's going on, these peculiar behaviors. But I will say the majority of the couples I work with that are working through some type of infidelity, the phone is the number one culprit. <laughs> and so um, I often end sure. up saying, if you don't want to see it again, don't text it, don't send it, don't instant message it because mm-hmm. um it will show up again so um so yeah and, and also you if you if you go looking for things you'll find something eventually yeah. um not necessarily something that is um that supports infidelity but something that is just makes you uncomfortable mm-hmm. um it's a it's a slippery slope 
And it's a very slippery slope. I would I would encourage you to in instead of handling it that way on your own, um, handle it handle it head on with your partner. Um, come to a consensus together and let them know that this isn't a this isn't a, a type of feeling that I want to feel. Uh, I'd like to move past this as quickly as possible. So how can we, like you said, establish trust again? And um, what what boundaries or what new behaviors do we need to set that that allows us both to feel comfort? But, but yes, we do it together. Absolutely. Well, Clara, I hope we helped you and um, thanks for tuning in. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. positively transform schools, then let me, Joel Cotty, keynote speaker and facilitator of the professional learning, Ignite, hashtag love in schools, put deep passion, purpose, and joy back into your classrooms, hallways, and school events. Share my contact information with a principal or district leader near you. My phone number is 859-967-8510 and find me on Twitter and Facebook at Ignite Love PD. We are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today my guest is Jonah Brown, and we're talking about sickle cell. And so, um, you know, I have a ton of questions about dealing with it, uh, not only from crisis episodes, but day to day. But, you know, I would also imagine that if you are experiencing pain and are seeking help, that there might be some inclination, like if they can't see it, to maybe say it's all in your head, or parts of this are are in your head. So have you had that experience uh, during a crisis? Uh, yes, I certainly have. Really? And I, I think that's something that, that others have as well. Um, I, really quick, I, there's something called the um, MTAL, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. Uh, this is a law that basically dictates what hospitals are required to do to treat someone that shows up at the hospital with an emergent situation or, or if they're in active labor, regardless of their insurance status. Uh, and it basically says that all a hospital has to do is get someone stable. Um, that can mean a lot of different things, but if you are someone who uh, is in a, a situation like, like many sickle cell patients are in where they're in need of uh, pain treatment and, and other treatments, um, it can be easy for hospitals to give a couple of pills and send you out the door. If they think that, if they're skeptical of your motives, if they don't believe why you're there, um, and I can tell a personal story that, that happened to me once. I was in college uh, and I was out. Um, it was late at night. I had a friend of mine, a, a white guy, uh, take me to the ER because I was in a severe pain crisis and I could not drive myself. And hmm. uh, he was the closest person to me. So I, I called him up and said, can you come and get me? Uh, he took me to the ER and I won't say which hospital we were at. But um, we sat there in an empty ER for several hours in the middle of the night. Uh, and, and that's one of the unique things. I've, you've probably heard me as I'm talking through this about being um, 
awakened in the middle of the night with pain. That's one of the unique characteristics that is presented for me. And I think for a lot of patients is, is that the crisis itself tend to happen at night. Well, that's not exclusive. Sometimes mm-hmm. I could, I could be sitting here right now. And in five minutes I start aching, but, um, predominantly they happen at night because your body's in a restful state and a lot of the systems are starting to shut down and, and, I guess whatever is going to happen in your circulatory system is more likely to happen at night. The way I, I understand it, um, but we sat there in the ER in the middle of the night, probably going on two, three a.m. And they finally took me back. They saw me, and they were willing to give me IV fluids, and they were willing to give me oxygen. Uh, and they were asking me, just like I mentioned, you know, what do you normally do to treat the pain that you have? And I would tell them, you know, it, and it's usually. Um, drugs like morphine or mm-hmm. uh, oxycodone. Um, I used to keep medicine you know, with me that was lower level. So I wouldn't carry morphine, but I would have Tylenol with codeine or Percocet. That, that's what I would treat. And usually that was how, as a kid, they taught me, if you're needing this level of medicine, then you probably need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go to them and say, I've taken this and it's not helping at all. I'm taking Percocets and there's no effect. Um, I would probably need a morphine or a Dilaudid. Mm-hmm. Those are, are uh, I think, schedule one or schedule two narcotics. Yep. Um, so if a young black guy in a hoodie shows up in a hospital in the middle of the mm-hmm. night and says, I'm in so much pain, I need morphine, I need um, oxycodone, that is uh, something that you know is subject to the person that you're asking. It's not a yeah. protocol thing at that point. If the person that hears that understands what sickle cell is and knows that's pretty much the only thing that can ease the pain of someone with sickle cell in a crisis, then they're usually likely to get on it. If they are unsure about it, or if they're in a, an area where they're used to drug seeking activity and mm-hmm. ER settings, um, then you get this, this skeptical look and that's what I got. And then I started having to ask, uh, excuse me, answer questions and explain uh, myself. And, and how do you prove in the middle of the night when you're in pain, that you're not lying about the disease that you have, yep. you, that um, you're not lying about the treatment that is necessary. Um, how do you how do you do that? It is very easy to see when you think about it that way. Um, how people can end up in really dangerous situations in the ER setting. People, you know, and I've had family members um, be great advocates for me, um, having to fight and argue and yell with nurses and with doctors about treatment that's needed because. Um, they're skeptical and there's just no way to convince them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other problem with that practice is um, when sickle cell patients are in a crisis, it is a race against time because mm-hmm. your body can continue to worsen. The sickling can continue. The pain is so extreme. It, it's not anything I would wish on my worst enemy. It's not the, I mean, it, at that point, it is just extended suffering, but while the pain is going, while the pain is happening, there are other things that are happening in the body uh, that can cause the body to shut down. Acute chest syndrome. I mentioned mm-hmm. the risk of, mm-hmm. of a stroke. Um, those kinds of things uh, happen to people with sickle cell. And if you're in an ER setting and there's access to the medication and treatment that you need, but you've got to spend two hours going through these unnecessary tests to prove what you have, is, what you're saying is true, um, you know, that can be that can be life and death. So like in that situation, um, so you're having an acute pain crisis, the morphine uh, basically stops the pain, but then what cures the problem? 
for the, the, the acute problem. So that's the challenge with sickle cell. Is there's nothing that, that cures it. So essentially the, the process of, of treatment in a hospital setting is um, you first want to stabilize the patient. So the pain medicine mm-hmm. is meant to um, get the, the patient to calm down, be under control, hopefully be able to, to rest. Um, but you're going to wake up and you're, you're still in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the damage that's being done during that initial pain attack uh, is what then you're going to experience for the next several days. So um, I might I might show up to the ER at 2 a.m. and get treated with medication, IV fluids, and oxygen, and then by 6 a.m. they make the decision that I can either go home if if the pain has subsided enough that I feel like it's under control and I can manage mm-hmm. it at home. Uh, but if it if it continues and persists, um, then I'll likely be admitted to the hospital. Um, and at that point, they're only treating the symptoms by um, uh, hydrating the patient, keeping them uh, with fluids. Um, they're likely to do blood work uh, to determine if the patient needs a blood transfusion because that's one of the things that can happen when you're in a, in a crisis. Your blood count drops so low that mm. um, you're, you're weak. You're not able to, uh, your body's not able to heal itself properly uh, with the amount of blood that you have. So, um, you know, I might get a unit or two of blood or, or more, depending on how severe it is. Um, and then you're just treating the other symptoms. So if, uh-huh. if something else has happened, like, you know, if, if I've got something going on in my arm, then they're, they're treating that. Um, but there's nothing that cures or stops the crisis. It's once it happens, you just have to let it run its course. And that could be mm-hmm. two days of sickling. It could be 14 days of sickling. And I've had pretty much the entire range, but um, there's just no way to know um, um, until you're out of it. Um, Sometimes underlying infections can set in as well when you're in a hospital setting uh, and then you're treating those. Um, other, other things come up that, that can, can delay it, but, but pretty much that's, that's the course. Um, and and it, it's, like I said, it's so unpredictable because mm-hmm. I could come in and have pain in my back. And then the next day, the pain in my back isn't that bad, but the pain in my leg has emerged and it lasts for two weeks and I'm not able to walk for two weeks. So, you know, it, it just varies. So this might be a hard question to answer, but you mentioned the pain. Um, is there anything you could compare it to that someone who doesn't have sickle cell might be able to relate to in terms of what that pain is like and what it feels like? Yeah. So I, I don't personally, but the, the one thing that I've always been told from doctors uh, is the closest, the closest comparable pain to this is labor pain um, mm. for any woman who's ever experienced labor pain. Mm. Um, I think the difference is the way that it presents. It's, it's an extended pain that can, can continue for several days. I know some labor, I guess, can, can do that, but, but yeah. usually where labor pain, you're talking a finite, a shortened amount of time. With sickle cell, that's the closest thing that I've heard it compared to. For me personally, I can't think of anything that is similar. Um, It, you know, it can be, it can feel like an ache. It can feel like a dull ache. It can feel like a throbbing pain. Um, It's not visible. You can't look at your arm and see that it's hurting, but you can feel it. Um, it also can be associated with muscle weakness. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, my, I might not be able to walk, or I might not be able to use my arm. Um, it can, it can affect that as well, but just what it's like, uh, you know, we use a scale of one to 10 to measure the level of pain that you have. And that's how you determine the, the medicine you need and how severe it is. 
Um, and I try to keep a really good barometer of how my body feels day to day because yep. outside of the actual pain episodes, a lot of people with sickle cell live with chronic pain and aches from um, the damage that they've sustained over, over the years. Uh, and that sometimes feels similar to the, the episodic pain. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty unique, I guess I'd say. Wow. So, so the other question too, is, um, you mentioned possibility of stroke. Are there Mm -hmm. other common, uh, I guess, how does in an acute fashion, how can sickle cell kill you is kind of the question of that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, let me, let me pull back on that. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to put out there that, that it is a, is a disease that you can, I shouldn't say, uh, I, cause I do know people who've, who've lost their life as a result of sickle cell, but it, mm-hmm. it is not much different from other diseases and that, uh, you know, it usually affects some other part of your body. So you might have pneumonia. Uh, pneumonia is often an underlying cause of other diseases mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to death. So uh, it can cause, you know, it could cause a pneumonia uh, that that could be fatal. It could cause a stroke that could be mm-hmm. fatal. Okay. Um, organ damage over a period of time is something else that um, could be fatal. Uh, so those kinds of things can happen, um, but it is not. It is. Uh, it is not common. It is not, it is not something that everybody with sickle cell will, mm-hmm. will die from it. That was one of the other things that, that was out there. And, and as a child, I would read that, you know, people with sickle cell had much, much lower life expectancies in their thirties and forties. Um, you know, and there, and there are people who, who, who don't get to live that, that long with sickle cell, but there are, are, especially as modern medicine continues to evolve and we just are getting better at treating lots of different diseases um, people are able to live longer from it. Good. You know, I had a really, really difficult conversation with my doctor once and I asked that question. I said, you know, I feel good about my day to day, but I want to know, is this something, uh, you know, how, how might this be, uh, you know, be fatal for me? Um, and, and that was pretty much the answer is, you know, the long-term organ damage that you sustain um, because the sickling as well affects the, affects the organs, the blood flow mm-hmm. that uh, supposed to go to those organs, the oxygen that is delivered, when that happens at a reduced or diminished rate, it can damage those organs. And over time, um, you know, those kinds of things are irreparable. So gotcha. um, that's that's just one of the other things that people with sickle cell have to really, really be careful about and think about and monitor. Yeah. Well, um, mm, that's encouraging. You know, um, we're up against a commercial break. Uh, my guest today is Jonah Brown, and we're talking about sickle cell. So um, we'll be right back after this break. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. segment of Paradigm Insights into Relationships in You is sponsored by the Parker Relationship Center, working to better relationships with individuals, couples, and families. Find us on the web at www.relationshipcenterky.com. 
We are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Jonah Brown, and we've been talking about sickle cell. Um, so, you know, we were talking before, you know, you've had a lot of episodes in your life with sickle cell that have landed you in the hospital, uh, kind of sidelined you from uh, from different things in life, whether it be celebrations, happy times. I know the first in our first uh, interview, you talked about you know, flying back from your honeymoon, going straight to the hospital. Um, so those are kind of the tough times you've had to overcome. But I'm sure there are some success stories from your uh, living with sickle cell um, that are in your highlight reel of things. And what's what are some of those? Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned the, in the um, previous episode uh, some of the literature that I received as a child about the expectations for people living with sickle cell and the idea that they would be lazier, that they would not be, um, they would not perform well academically, that they would have trouble uh, keeping jobs. Uh, you know, I, I think I said, I, I set out very early to confound those expectations. So, you know, I was despite being sick, despite being in and out of the hospital and missing school and missing things, you know, I was, I was always a top student in my class. I was always a straight A student. I was always um, really excited about school. So, you know, when I'd be in the hospital, um, there was a teacher, uh, her name was Miss Mary and she was a hospital, <laughs> hospital teacher. And she would, she would come around and she would help us with our homework assignments, but she would also give us different crafts and activities and um, she and I had a really good relationship and she would always come around with new uh, projects and, and things for me to do in, in the hospital and the children's hospital at the time. And, um, you know, I was able to stay on track through most mm. of my um, um, elementary, middle and high school um, times. And even when I got to college, I, I had to withdraw my um, freshman year, my second semester because of uh, hospitalization. But outside of that, um, I was able to stay on track despite all of the times that I was sick. Um, you know, I graduated from University of Kentucky, went on to um, law school. Uh, when I was at UK, I was uh, student body president and um, ran a, an entire year-long campus-wide campaign. And, um, you know, those kinds of things are, are difficult to do with, with uh, you know, sometimes how my body felt. But um when I'm healthy, I'm going to push myself and I'm going to keep going. And you know, I've been fortunate enough to have a great support system around me of my family when I was younger and, and still to this day. Um, and then meeting my wife in college and her being a um, just a blessing to me um, then and, and now um, allowed me to be able to continue to live the life I wanted to live and do the things I wanted to do. Um, and certainly with, with adjustments and, and with, you know, different expectations and others might have, but I was still able to experience these things. And, um, you know, even to this day, uh, you know, I, I, I am in a constant battle between, you know, what my body is telling me and what my mind is telling me what I want to be able to do. And so, you know, people out there that have this disease know what I'm talking about. Um, when your body just won't let you do the things that you want to do. As soon as I'm able to, uh, I try to be back on my feet and, I think that's just what you have to do because ultimately, uh, you know, regardless of the treatments, regardless of what the doctors tell you, regardless of what people around you tell you, you, you have to uh, 
um, you have to just keep going. You just have to keep pushing. Um, it's not easy. And um, there are days where it's really difficult and, and there's times when you just have to stop and, and listen to your body. But, um, you know, I've, I've been blessed in my life. I've lived a blessed life. And, you know, if something happened to me tomorrow, um, I, I would say that I've, I've lived a full and blessed life, but I still have lots of goals, lots of mm-hmm. things left to do and lots of things for my wife and I to experience. So, um, you know, I want sickle cell to become a thing for lots of people that they live with it and they can cope with it, but it does not define them and it doesn't dramatically limit their quality of life. Um, that's what I've been able to experience. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about the ways that you treat sickle cell, the comprehensive nature of it outside of the clinical setting with, with the doctors. And, you know, when I'm in a crisis, um, you know, I've learned to be better about taking care of myself and I would encourage anyone with sickle cell or not to, to find ways to do the same. But, you know, my wife and I get regular massages now to uh, keep my muscles loose and my, my body, you know, cause I wake up and living with chronic pain now with sickle cells, you know, basically my body every day feels the effects of all the years of things that it's been through. Um, so some days it's tougher to get out of bed. Some days I feel like an old man when I stand up, but you know, we get massages to, to, to stay loose. I've been working on, um, improving my diet, eating healthier, um, mm-hmm. more whole foods and fresh vegetables and less meats, less snacks and sugars and things like that. Just to, improve my overall health profile. Um, you know, I see a counselor every week to, um, address my, um, mental health, um, concerns and, and issues and just deal with some of the things that I've, I've had to live with that, um, bring me stress and, and anxiety. Um, you know, I've, I need to rely on my, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, you, know, you mentioned your wife and it, you know, it made me think about something in my line of work. I often encounter, uh, clients in a couple setting where whatever their partner is dealing with, they didn't sign up for. And it's been everything from uh, post-traumatic stuff to anxiety, depression, um, to physical diagnosis. So um, what was that conversation like when you and your wife were dating to... um, so there often another question too is like, when did you tell her? What was that conversation like? And, um, you know, she, how, how was she able to sign up for this and then marry you and be such a part of your life now? Yeah. Uh, great, great question. Um, my wife and I met in college and we were friends at the time. We, um, had a lot of the same classes together and studied together, had similar majors at the time. Uh, and I think she learned about my sickle cell because in, in college, I wasn't, uh, I didn't hide it, but I didn't volunteer it to everyone I met. So you had to be fairly close to me to learn a little bit about that. Um, but I think she learned about it when I was actually in the ER. Um, hmm. And I think I had sent her a text or, or called her and told her, and I remember she was there within 30 minutes wow. and we were friends at the time, uh, but she was there and she sat with me in the ER that night and um, she got to see. And I remember at the time it wasn't a, a, a really severe crisis. I think I might have went home the next day, um, but I remember we talked a little bit about it. She asked me questions about it. And, you know, each time that I got sick, um, she was there with me and mm-hmm. each time she learned a little bit more. Um, wow. sometimes when we first started dating, 
she would step out in the hallway and as we got more serious you know she'd be there with me listening to what the doctors were saying she'd ask questions uh my wife is a great great patient advocate i can say whenever mm-hmm. she's yeah she's she's great about asking the right questions about following up and holding our doctors and nurses accountable and uh, making sure that they're giving me the best care um and unfortunately, that's that's kind of how you have to approach it because you can't take for granted that everybody is is there to give you um, adequate medical care. Um, right. being, being black and being um, someone looking for pain medications, there's a lot of stigma around that. So mm-hmm. she was very, very, and remains very passionate about about advocating for me in those moments. Mm. Um, you know, we've had we've had to have some really difficult conversations. You know, we we got married when we were getting married um you know she had to go get tested to see if she had the trait because i wanted to know what the what this would mean for our kids Mm -hmm. um you know there are lots of health issues that i've experienced that affect her not just in my own recovery but in um you know what it means for our life and our quality of life um and she has uh she didn't sign up for this but um she'll tell you she knew what she was signing up for when she, you know, said yes to me. Um, all right. I think, I think it's, I think it's, um, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I can't put into words how <laughs> blessed I am to have somebody um, be with me um, and not just be with me, but see me for me and not see mm-hmm. me as a patient, not see me as someone who's sick. Yeah. Um and not hold against me the ways that her life has had to be altered um, because of this. You know, my, my parents are a little different in that, you know, they gave birth to me and my sister, but uh, you know, my wife, you know, chose to be with me. Mm-hmm. So you're choosing a lot of things and sometimes you're, you're choosing unknowns um, that you can't fully grasp until you're in them. But um, she has never made me feel like I was a burden or a, problem for her i know that what we live with is a burden for both of us but i've never felt she's never made me feel like i am a burden or that what she has to do to adjust to this lifestyle you know being married to someone with sickle cell is a burden for her um and so i'm i'm eternally grateful for that and Hmm. you know we have a we have a beautiful relationship and so it's it's not much different than any of the other things we've talked about it's there are times where our life sort of pauses and we deal with this health issue but when we try to get back to our normal life of traveling and going out to eat and enjoying ourselves and playing with our dog and spending time Mm -hmm. with family and friends you know trying to build each other up and pursue each other's goals and dreams um it's not much different than any other marriage in that sense it's just that there's this other thing that we're also living with dealing with every day Um, yeah so she's she's now the one who's who will check on me make sure i've taken my meds make sure that i'm um <laughs> not just good. doing the, the 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 basic stuff but also you know have i have i talked to my counselor this week have i mm-hmm. you know doing meditation and things to keep my stress at bay am i you know am i getting the kind of support i need from my job am i getting support i need from from other obligations that i have she's she's very good about um about all of that it, it sounds like God has answered a lot of those prayers through your wife. Um, and she's yeah. been uh, just an, a remarkable, remarkable source of support uh, through this. I'm, I'm going to tell you, yeah. uh, the way you talk about her, it, it's, it's heartwarming. Um, it gives me, it encourages me because like I was saying before, I encounter 
couples and couples therapy where basically one partner says, mm, I didn't sign up for that. And um, yeah. so therefore I'm out or this, this isn't what I, what I want to do. And so having someone that's there for you for better or for worse is, um, you know, it's uh, priceless. Man. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. We are back. You're listening to Paradigm, insights into relationships and you. My guest today is Jonah Brown, and we are talking about um, sickle cell. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about the uh, treatment, care, uh, care when you have a crisis episode. Um, And you've alluded to this off and on through this, but you know, being a, having this disease, um, has to have a significant effect, not only on your relationships, um, but also like mental health. So, um, maybe let's talk about the relationships, Like you mentioned before, um, you've been married for a number of years and I would imagine your wife is the first line of defense or the first to know when there's something going on and that has to be kind of stressful. So, um, how how is uh, having how is having this disease affected your relationships? You know, it can be tough because um, it it does change some of the dynamics that we have on you know normal days for us when my wife has to go into caretaker mode and I have to force myself into patient mode. Um, mm-hmm. If I am if I am in a position where either I'm in pain, I'm in the hospital, or if I'm just not feeling that well, if I'm feeling tired and I need to rest. Um, you know, it can be, it can be a challenge. I think, you know, I, I didn't fully grasp, um, I, I saw it in my parents and I've seen it in my wife, but it's been hard to fully grasp until my wife and I've had some really deep conversations about what it's like just to see me in that condition, to see me, um, as a full grown adult in, in screaming, crying pain, um, what, what that must be like, or to see me, um, you know, not know what is happening to my body or not know what to do about it. Um, you know, the word that I hear a lot from my wife, I heard a lot from my mom growing up was helplessness. Mm. Um, you can feel helpless when you don't really have a, a lot of ways to, to change um, what's happening. Um, it can feel a little bit inevitable for, for me as the patient that, okay, um, I realized what this pain is. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I know exactly what that is. And there's nothing I can do. I see it coming and there's nothing I can do to stop it. I think it's very similar for the the loved ones, people who help, you know, living with someone with sickle cells, you see it coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And you know exactly what it means or what it could mean. It could mean a night in the ER. It could mean a week in the ER. It could mean uh, in a hospital. It could mean um, complications and things. And, and I think your mind races to lots of different places of, of what this could be. Um, you know, I was blessed growing up to have both of my parents always present um, in my life and, and, and in a, an emergent care situation. Um, I would see, you know, my dad was more measured and, and calm. He would stop and he'd pray with me. My mom would pray, but she would also um, you know, she would, I don't want to say she would panic, but she would get scared. It would be difficult for her to see me or my sister in pain like that. And I, I, you know, and, and I think the more they went through it, the better they got, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of just knowing what to do, knowing what to expect, knowing how to react. Um, 
but early on, I know it was, it was tough on them. And I think my wife is the same way. You know, she started seeing me go through this in college when we first started dating. Um, and her level of involvement just grew as, mm. as we got closer and she became more a part of my life um, to where now, you know, she's stepped into that role that, that my parents used to take on and just, mm. you know, getting me to the hospital or going to the doctor's appointments with me, asking the questions, making sure that I'm getting the right care. Uh, you know, just, I mean, pretty much constantly staying on top of the nurses, staying on top of the doctor's um, but that can be incredibly stressful. You know, usually they'd stay the night with me there at the hospital and they're sleeping in those really uncomfortable hospital chairs. Um, it, it can be grueling for someone, you know, taking care of me and, and taking care of anyone with, with this disease, uh, just because you're, you're constantly worried, but you're also, you're constantly on alert, but you're, you're, you're tired. You're not getting rest yourself, your, your, um, and, and for any disease, anyone that spent time in the hospital overnight, you know, it's really hard to get rest at night. Um, for sickle so, cell, it's no different. So I have a question for you. So you mentioned, um, the feeling of helplessness that your wife experiences when mm -hmm. there's nothing she can really do to help make things better. But you know, the other side of that too, is, um, you like, what's that like having to be that helpless and vulnerable with because we're, as men we don't want to we don't want to admit oh i'm down or i'm you know so um has that been uh, how have you worked through that you know that's something i think i accepted the awkwardness of needing help sometimes in really mm -hmm. inconvenient situations a long time ago uh, because I've had crises at all the worst possible times. I've had them at friends' houses during sleepovers. Mm -hmm. I've had them, you know, at school. I've had them at work. I've had them, um, you know, on vacations. Um, and when you're in a situation where all you can think about is I'll do anything to get out of the pain that I'm in, mm -hmm. uh, you, you pretty much surrender um, the pride and all the, the ego and all those other things that would normally come into play. It doesn't mean that I don't think about them, but it's it like it's pretty quick how your mind adjusts to, okay, you're now in survival mode. You don't have a choice but to um, let someone carry you in front of your your peers, in front of your friends, which is tough for someone in, in high school or in college mm -hmm. to, to, you know, I remember a couple of times from my dorm room, the ambulance would have to come and get me. And the, oh, wow. the, the embarrassing nature of that is is one thing, but it's, you know, for me, again, it's, I will have to deal with what's embarrassing about this later. Right now, yeah. I, I got to deal with the pain. Um, and, and, and maybe that speaks to just how severe the pain is. If you think about how uh, uncomfortable it might be to need to defer to someone for help, um, what, it, what does that say about the pain that that, that transition is pretty instant? Um, mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd say over time, I've just gotten used to it. I, I'm, and I'm pretty comfortable and secure in knowing you know, anybody that's in an emergent situation, if you're in a car accident or something, yeah. you know, you can't help it. You can't control it. You've got to, you know, accept that um, you now need to rely on a doctor or, or medical care or someone that's with you to take care of you. Uh, but it can be tough day to day because there are times where I'm not in that setting, but I just need to rest or take it easy. I'm not able to do certain things that uh, you know, a, a husband would want to be able to do. Um, 
it can be tough when, you know, like I said, I mentioned, we've been on vacation. It's my first year uh, anniversary vacation. We went to Las Vegas um, in the middle of, <laughs> middle of, I guess it was the end of May, uh, 100, 100 plus degree heat. I ended up getting sick oh, and no. just kind of crushed our, crushed our, our trip. Uh, my wife is, is um, an angel about that kind of stuff, but it still crushes me because, you know, that's the kind of thing that we look forward to that we build up to and it, it can be taken away. My senior trip, I didn't get to go on because I got sick the night before. Uh, I've been sick and, you know, I've had to go to the hospital on Christmas. I've spent oh, wow. the hospital, uh, spent the week in hospital, uh, uh, spent the week of Christmas in the hospital, Thanksgiving, uh, you name it, uh, the worst possible times it's happened to me. So, um, now at 36 years old, there's not a whole lot that can happen that will throw me off. You know, I think about days like my wedding day and I'm just, I can't get sick on those days. Um, yeah. that's, that's the thinking that goes into, but you just realize like it can still happen. And, and, and my honeymoon, the day we flew back from our honeymoon, we flew back and went straight to the hospital and I spent a week in the hospital. Um, so, so this sounds like the recipe for anxiety, basically yeah. never knowing when and um, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. probably, I would guess, um, then it, you can, we kind of tend to protect ourselves by expecting it, which also yeah. amplifies anxiety. So, you know, from a mental health standpoint, would that be the kind of the biggie, just not knowing when and not knowing when and sort of living with that, um, that, you know, I, I lay down every night thinking uh, whether tonight will be the night. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's a fleeting thought. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a lingering thought that can keep me from sleeping. Sometimes when I don't feel well and, you know, and we all have days where we just don't feel well. Days where you're tired, your body's tired, you do a lot, and you feel achy or uh, some other unrelated thing is going on. Uh, my mind races uh, when I lay down and the end of the day, everything kind of settles in on you. You feel everything that's aching and mm. stuff about your body, especially as I get older. My mind, my mind can't help but go to the place of, is this, is this that? Well, these are some excellent resources. And, and Joan, I want to thank you for coming on today and educating us all about uh, sickle cell. Um, you've been listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. My guest today was Jonah Brown. And um, we'll be back next week. If you have a relationship therapy or personal growth question you would like answered on the air, email me at toby at paradigmradioshow.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You is brought to you by Jenkins Professional Services and Hype Media Global. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You with Toby Jenkins. Join us again.